0: want to do an overview uh, of the author, the book, and explain why we're headed, where we're headed, in an effort to understand the heart posture we're going to take as we study 1 John verse by verse, okay? So uh, we're going to start with the Gospel of John and then address the first few verses uh, in the epistle of 1 John. Uh, in 2010, a movie company called Alcon Entertainment released a suspense thriller called The Book of Eli. In this movie, there was a society that had crumbled uh, for the few people and resources that remain after this nuclear event. And throughout the film, a vicious overlord seeks to hold all power by privately owning uh, what remains of world history, ultimately seeking to complete his library of records with the last remaining copy of the Bible. And it's a book that he hopes to, to misuse, abuse and basically dictate a new moral code uh, for society. And this movie was actually uh, written by a friend of mine, his name is Gary Witta, from my uh, video game podcasting days, and here's what he had to say about the idea behind the Book of Eli, this film from 2010. He said, the ultimate message of the movie is that what will build a new society is not weapons and muscles, but rather ideas, words, languages, and culture. So when you, the viewer, see what the book is, and you see what Eli, the main character, is able to do with it, and how he defends it, that, to me, tells you God must exist. If not, there's no other explanation for how the character is able to do what he does. He went on to say, I don't know how many people will pick up on that theme, and by that theme he means God empowering the individual to rightfully handle the word of God against enemies. And then he said, unless, of course, you are a person of faith, in which the message of the movie will be very clear to you. And while that movie is home to many twists and turns, one message is clear. Rightfully handling the word of God is no small task. And praise God, we have not been tasked with transporting the word of God through a post-nuclear war zone. But every single person in this room has been tasked with rightfully handling the Word of God through a postmodern world of ideas and culture. And so it is for that reason we have selected the book of 1 John out of a desire to clarify its meaning and purpose that we may find the meaning and purpose of our relationship with God. What is the meaning and purpose and outflow of our relationship with God? Over the last few weeks, we covered Romans 6, 7, and 8, really harping on our identity and what it means once you are established into that relationship with God. And so 1 John is going to be an excellent book to study to start to address the context of our fellowship with God, which is why I wanted to emphasize the importance of rightfully handling the word of truth, because the book of 1 John is arguably the most contested book of the Bible. Many different theological takes, many different perspectives, many different ways of interpreting Scripture. And if you remember what we did earlier this summer uh, when we were out at the pavilion, the Bible study methodology of making sure we observe, interpret, and apply Scripture correctly. If we're going to do that, I want to give us an overview of what we know about the author, what he has shared with us before, and anchor ourselves in what the gospel of John reveals to us so that we can handle the epistle of first John effectively. And so hopefully you guys are at the book of John and what we know about the author John, who is most likely responsible for John, first, second, third John, and Revelation is there's a very similar thematic uh, element and and process he uses as he writes his books. And so the majority of of critics and theologians believe that it is that same John that is writing the gospel, that would one day later write the epistles, and then also the book of Revelation as well. And so we see common themes throughout that. One of them is abiding in God, and we understand what that means. And we'll we'll get into the nitty-gritty of that as the weeks continue. But the gospel of John is often viewed as addressing our relationship with God, and the book of 1 John is often also viewed as testing our relationship with God. If you Google resources for studying 1 John, you will come across something that says proof of salvation or tests for an authentic faith come from 1 John. And the reason we're doing this study is we're going to exegete it and prove that that's not the case, nor the purpose of the book. And so I want to use the Gospel of John tonight and an overview of that book to clarify the lens through which we're going to look at the second book he wrote, namely the book of 1 John. So John the Gospel is a book about uh, relationship with God, but it is also a book about fellowship. And there's a specific section of the Gospel of John... Called the Upper Room Discourse, and it's John chapters 13 through 16. There is a very significant break that happens, a pivot in audience. The ambition of Jesus changes based on his audience as John 12 ends and John chapter 13 begins, because the environment changes, the context in which he's speaking, the type of people he is speaking to changes. As we look at John the Gospel, it is addressing our relationship with God and accepting Christ as who he is in chapters 1 through 12. John chapters 1 through 12 is home to the seven signs Christ demonstrates to prove that he is the Savior. So in John chapter 2 verses 1 through 11, we have the changing water into wine, the first of the signs it's called. Uh, In John chapter 4, we have a healing of a royal official's son in Capernaum. In John 5, healing the paralytic at Bethesda. In John 6, feeding the 5,000. Jesus walking on water in in, in the second part of John 6, healing the man blind from birth in John 9. And the raising of Lazarus in John chapter 11. And the the Greek words that are used and the audience and context in which Jesus is demonstrating these miracles is so that people will believe in Jesus. And there's a a, a unique Greek word for that, believe in me, based on that which you have seen. So that is coming to and establishing a relationship with God. That's the purpose of the book. If you're in John, turn to John chapter 20, uh, verse uh, 30 and 31. And I don't know if you knew this passage existed, but it's actually very helpful because it leaves out the ambiguity of why did the author write the book of John. John gives us the reason. John chapter 20, verses 30 and 31. Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book, but these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, The Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in His name. So we get the purpose of the book of John. It's very evangelical. There's there's an emphasis on evangelism, coming to know Christ Jesus. We know this. That's that's, uh, commonly understood when we study the book of John. But what's very important about knowing what happens between John chapter 13 and 16 can help define and dictate how we are going to approach the book of 1 John. And so my goal is to to demonstrate that this evening and go through just the first couple verses of 1 John so that as we continue to study it, we will see this come to light. Uh, Turn to John chapter 12, verses 44 through 50. This is going to take place right before Christ begins his upper room discourse with a much smaller audience. In John chapter 12, 44 through 50 addresses the world. Here's what it says. Uh, The heading in the ESV translation, Jesus came to save the world, verse 44. And Jesus cried out and said, Whoever believes in me, believes not in me, but in him who sent me. And whoever sees me, sees him who sent me. I have come into the world as light, so that whoever believes in me may not remain in darkness." may not remain in darkness. If anyone hears my words and does not keep them, I do not judge them, for I did not come to judge the world, but to save the world. So the demographic of this final speech is very clear who he's addressing. The one who rejects me and does not receive my words has a judge. The word that I have spoken will judge him on the last day. For I have not spoken on my own authority, but the Father who sent me has himself given me a commandment what to say and what to speak. And I know that this that his commandment is eternal life. What I say therefore, I say as the Father has told me. So what does that tell us? Well, as John chapter 12 ends, Jesus is wrapping up his ad- address of the world. Those that have yet to believe in Jesus, those in the world that have believed in him, he's reminding everybody who he is acting on behalf of and what he's after. And, and we know as we study John and, and how Jesus encountered people of the, the religious right rebuking Jesus anytime he would demonstrate or claim that he is God, right? Which is why he doesn't refer to himself nearly as much as he refers to the one who sent him. As we look at John 13, and so tonight we're going to be studying John chapter 13 and the first five verses of 1 John, there's going to be a pivot in the audience and I'm going to get us to a point where we see that Christ stops addressing a relationship with himself, that, that people in the world may believe in him, and he starts addressing fellowship with himself, and that we may continue to follow him and have an intimate relationship with him. So let's read John, the Gospel of John, chapter 13. Begins in verse 1 Now, before the feast of the Passover, Peter said to him, You should never wash my feet. But Jesus answered him, If I do not wash you, you have no share with me. So then Simon Peter said to him, Lord, not my feet only then, but also my hands and my head. Jesus said to him, The one who has bathed does not need to wash except for his feet, but he is completely clean. And you are clean. And then he clarifies, but not every one of you, for he knew who was to betray him. That was why he said, Not all of you are clean. We'll stop there for a second. A lot is happening in this Jesus encounter, but it has pivoted from the grand scheme of things that the world may believe in me into a much more intimate supper in which he begins washing the disciples' feet. And as he does that, there is confusion as to why he is doing it. And so we see that response as as Peter wrestles with what Jesus is doing. And so when Jesus mentions the importance of washing the feet, Peter says, well, why don't you wash all of me then? And Jesus says, you don't understand. You're already clean. But if I don't wash your feet, you will have no part with me. What Jesus is saying is, is that there is a difference between being made clean in the eyes of God, taking a full bath, which is what Peter asked for. Don't just wash my feet, wash all of me. Jesus said, you've already been washed, except your feet. So John 13 demonstrates the difference between a relationship with God, being baptized in the Holy Spirit and being made new, and an intimate washing that needs to take place. So cleaning the feet versus taking the bath. And if you knew anything about the way they would walk around and the conditions of the town at the time, that was no small task. You're not walking into a nail salon, propping up your beautiful feet, and then you just make them all pretty. Ugly, gross, disgusting. You wouldn't want to associate anything with with God himself and the feet. And so as Peter is, is ashamed of what his feet have gone through, for we all know when we walk a path, we take some of that with us as we go, We don't want to interact with Jesus on that level. He's addressing believers. The upper room discourse, John 13 through 16, is for the believer. It is not for the unbeliever. He is addressing a quality of life that that ought to be coming from our spiritual walk and the importance of continually fellowshipping with Christ and letting him wash our feet. Jesus says, if you don't let me wash your feet, Your feet, you will have no part with me. You will be out of fellowship with me. So let me do this. There's a very important theological concept to that, and it's going to help us formulate what we think of a Christian struggling in sin, which we just studied last month, that if you are a Christian struggling in sin, it's going to be very important to remember that's not who you are. That's how you are at times. Your identity in Christ has changed if you've accepted him as Savior. But now there's a condition at stake. Your position is not at stake. You're in Christ. But your condition is at stake. And we have all had a a variety of conditions. And perhaps it's a poor or low condition that even brings you here this evening. So what's going to fix it? Well, Jesus is very clear. For the believer, they need cleaning. Not to the degree they did when they once believed. But now there's a fellowship connection with Jesus. However... He clarifies there is somebody among them who does not belong. And so what Jesus does with Judas demonstrates who was meant to partake in the upper room discourse. As we continue to read John chapter 13, here's what it says. When he had washed their feet and put on his outer garments and resumed his place, he said to them, Do you understand what I have done to you? You call me teacher and Lord, and you are right, for I am. If I then, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet... You also ought to wash one another's feet. For I have given you an example that you also should do just as I have done to you. Truly, truly, I say to you, a servant is not greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. If you know these things, blessed are you if you do them. I am not speaking of all of you. I know whom I have chosen, but the scripture will be fulfilled. He who ate my bread has lifted his heel against me, I am telling you this now before it takes place, that when it does take place, you may believe that I am he. So Jesus is foreshadowing what's gonna happen with Judas. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever receives the one I send receives me, and whoever receives me receives the one who sent me. But after saying these things, Jesus was troubled in spirit, John 13, verse 21, and testified, truly, truly, I say to you, one of you will betray me. The disciples looked at one another, uncertain of whom he spoke, one of his disciples, whom Jesus loved, now, no one at the table knew why he said this to him. Some thought that because Judas had the money bag, Jesus was telling him, "But we may, uh, but buy what we need for the feast," or that he should simply give something to the poor. So, after receiving the morsel of bread, he immediately went out, and it was night. So, as Jesus comes to his, his final stages pre crucifixion. We see an encounter uh, happen among this group of disciples with Jesus that's kind of this one-off conversation about who is going to betray him. And then a public transaction amongst the group takes place with Judas, and there's opinions on why that transaction just happened. Is Judas the one that's betraying Jesus? Perhaps he's just running an errand for Jesus? We don't know. All we know is that whatever comes next was not for Judas to hear. God is interested in the believer and what we ought to know and think and strive for after we have him. And we're going to end 31 through 35 before we jump to 1 John. Here's what it says. There's a new commandment in John chapter 13. When he had gone out, Jesus said, Now is the Son of Man glorified and God is glorified in him. If God is glorified in him, God will also glorify him in himself and glorify him at once. Little children, yet a little while I'm with you. You will seek me. And just as I said to the Jews, so now I say to you, where I am going, you cannot come. But I give you a new commandment, that you love one another, just as I have loved you. You also are to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. So, we'll stop Uh, there as far as John 13 is concerned. But it becomes very clear that Christ is instructing his people, his body, his church, his believers, after demonstrating an intimate fellowship of servitude and demonstrating Christ-like redemption in the life of another believer. And so that's his commandment. Love one another as I have loved you. Now that is a passage that's taken out of context all the time. We're called to, to love one another as Christ has, And if you took a survey, even of this building on a Sunday morning, what did Christ mean when he say that? Love one another as he had. People would say, we should be willing to die for somebody else. We want to pick up our cross and and do whatever we can for other people and this, that, and the other. And we want to to execute everything Jesus did. That's a noble thought. That wasn't what Jesus was referring to. He is very clear in, in John 13, I have just done this. I have given you an example, John 13, 15, that you also should do just what I have done. And that's wash each other's feet. Humble yourself in service. Elevate other people up above you and love them as Christ has loved them. And so what I mean by that is not to take away from the cross and be willing to sacrifice for somebody else. That's not what I'm saying. There's there's biblical merit to that. But what Jesus was referring to is the exact act he just did. This is how you love one another. You serve. You serve one another. You help them through this process that leads to an intimate connection and fellowship with Christ Jesus. We're not going to do it tonight. It'll probably come up throughout. But if we were to continue reading 14, 15, and 16 of John, the Gospel John, we get a lot of famous passages talking about Jesus being the vine and this, that, and the other. and And the Gospel of John, specifically the upper room discourse that takes place when Jesus stops addressing the world and has a huddle with his believers, we read these passages and tell ourselves lies like, this is proof of salvation, or this is how I will be declared right in the eyes of God. But what's interesting is, here's what Jesus said, the last verse we we, uh, mentioned By this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. So he is interested in you being justified in the eyes of men, not in the eyes of God. You have already been justified in the eyes of God, but Peter, you're missing the point. It's not about escape from hell anymore. It's about experiencing heaven and stop distancing yourself from me. Don't hide your feet from me either because I'm here for your garbage. So if you want to grow in that relationship that is forever established and experience fruitful fellowship, you're going to serve those around you, and you're going to know why I came and why I'm going to send you. That's what he gives them, a new commandment. It's not to be justified in the eyes of God. It's not proof of salvation that I may feel better. It's so somebody else can look at me and say, what is it about that person that they would serve so selflessly? that they would respond to some sort of transformation that they claim God Almighty did for them. And you're curious. It's a curious thing. You're different in the most curious of ways, as C.S. Lewis called a Christian. We are going to see that the author of John and 1 John are are using that same context— as he writes 1 John and demonstrates the importance of not determining whether or not you're right in the eyes of God, but whether or not you are experiencing him. Because if you've accepted Jesus Christ as your personal savior, that relationship exists, but it might be starving. And, and 1 John is gonna address that. But if we, if we misinterpret 1 John, and we'll get to it, I'll explain why we went to John first, if you haven't realized already. It's, it's to not set a fire under our feet to make sure we're doing the right things. It's to set a fire in our heart and realize the world is being fed a lie that once you believe Christ died for you, he's done with you. Died for me, done with me. And it couldn't be further from the truth. He didn't just save you from something. He saved you for something, and that something is himself and those around you. So that's why we're studying what we're studying. So go ahead and turn to uh, the epistle of First John and we're going to read the first five verses with the idea of, of clearly there, there is opportunity to address the world just as there is opportunity to address God's people and uh, the importance of growing in a fellowship with Christ after a relationship has been established. Okay, So this is the foundation of our series. So next week we will be going through uh, verses 5 through 10. And we'll see further parallels that the author continues to use. But we'll have a better frame of reference for the purpose of 1 John and the purpose of us pursuing the guy that died for us. Here's what it says. That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen, which we looked upon and have touched with our hands concerning the word of life. The life was made manifest and we have seen it, And testify to it, and proclaim to you the eternal life which was with the Father and was made manifest to us. That which we have seen and heard, we proclaim also to you, so that you too may have fellowship with us. And indeed, our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. And we are writing these things so that our joy may be complete. We get a twofold purpose of the book of 1 John right then and there. And, and we're going to see other examples where, where, where the author in 1 John mentions how to address the world and how to address believers. But the author is very vivid in demonstrating not only does he have a relationship with Christ... He knows him pretty well. Uh, Here's what he says. uh, That which was from the beginning. That that is fancy language for Jesus Christ himself. Because this is the same author of the Gospel of John. And we're going to see him unpack the very similar themes of light and truth and, and, and Jesus being the way, the truth, and the light. So that which was from the beginning is God's revelation to us made manifest in Jesus. And then here's how he explains his perception and experience with Christ. And what we know about the story of John, this is true, which we have heard, which we have seen, which we looked and have touched our hands concerning the word of life. There's an author, uh, David Anderson, of a book called Maximum Joy that breaks down the book of 1 John. And he addresses this verse and says it is demonstrating a concept of a magnetic Messiah. 1 John hears of this guy. Then he sees this guy, notices him. Then he looks upon him to the point where he touches him. First John doesn't waste any time demonstrating the progressive nature of fellowship with somebody that you clearly know exists. He's a magnetic Messiah. John experienced the depths and riches of getting to know Jesus Christ. And as he writes this epistle, he's very clear that that is the truth. And that is what we're here for. As he continues, he says, The life was made manifest, verse 2, We have seen it, testified to it, and proclaimed to you the eternal life, which was with the Father and was also made manifest to us. What does that mean? His audience is Christians. So, as we continue through this book, and we'll get to what I call problem passages, which are uh, primarily used passages for a misunderstanding of the book such as uh, the book is for proof of salvation, to know if you do or do not have a relationship with God. They're missing the point of, of the audience is saying, we are established in God. You know what I mean when I say eternal life. It has been made manifest in us. And then the author says, so here we go. And here is his twofold purpose. That which we have seen and heard, we proclaim also to you. What is he saying? That which we have seen, the good news of Christ in the world, we are proclaiming the same daggone thing to believers for this reason so that you too may have fellowship with us. We did a a brief word study on when the word may or maybe comes up in the New Testament, and it's this subjunctive mood in Greek, which means it's not guaranteed to happen because you accepted Christ as your Savior. There is merit to growing with this guy. Yes, you're saved from hell, but are you entertaining other things you need rescue from? When's the last time you had your feet washed? A lazy Christian celebrates that the bath already took place, but they forget what it's like to walk down here. 1 John emphasizes that point. That we may have fellowship. That's why we're studying this book, that we may have fellowship. What do we do now... That We've accepted Christ as our personal Savior. I don't care if you did it yesterday, 20 years ago. There is room for growth and intimacy in fellowship. How well do you know the guy that died for you? What else do you believe about Jesus? That's the first purpose of the twofold purpose, that we may have fellowship. And indeed, our fellowship is with the Father. And so there's a the cool unity there of when we come together as a body of believers, Christ is with us. And here's the second purpose of 1 John. We are writing these things (laughs) so that our joy may be complete. So we have not been granted the right to ignore the intro of this book when we misquote or misinterpret 1 John chapters 2 and 3 of proof of salvation or what I do if I do or don't repent from a specific sin. Do not forget what the author has already given us, the authorial intent, the cultural and historical and biblical context of the audience that is not unlike the audience Jesus chose for his upper room discourse. From the unbelievers to the believers and one betrayer, to experience serving and love and booting (coughs) the unbeliever, the betrayer, to addressing his people one final time with a final commandment. Same author, same passion, same interest, that a Christian would not get complacent. So as we study these next few verses, we're going to be thinking about that these next few weeks and months and however long it takes us to get verse by verse through this book so that you are leaving with something, a greater understanding and appreciation of a book. Okay? Fellowship Bible Church. There are adult biblical training center classes on Sunday mornings, and next week they're launching one on First John. There are opportunities, nay, merit to us studying the Bible in such a way so that even young adult ministry on a Thursday night is not a one-off topic to make you feel better about Afghanistan, but actually transforming Scripture in your mind to better pray and handle that stuff when it pops up. How well are you getting attuned to the Bible you bring? Does it sit on your back seat until Thursday evening? What what part of your routine does Christ fall into? And as we grow in him, 1 John's going to clarify what a, what a living, breathing relationship turned fellowship is. Two things are going to happen. We will have fellowship with the guy who died for us, and here's the kicker our joy will be complete. So, as a struggling Christian, you have not been granted the right to complain that you are without joy if you haven't taken seriously the call to continue to grow in your faith and accept Jesus more and more as not just a one-off Savior, but a daily friend, a daily Father who loves us. That's the truth of 1 John. We may have fellowship with him. The book wants us to. And our joy may be complete. That's why we're doing this. What Christ guaranteed on the cross opened the door for many possibilities that were never guaranteed but are now possible. Does that make sense? Fellowship (laughs) with God is not possible for the unbeliever. Christ is clear of that. But what is possible is everything that comes after establishing a relationship with Jesus We don't want to be spiritual infants. John's not going to waste even another chapter before mentioning spiritual age and how we can combat it and grow in it. So as we unpack this book, there are going to be passages worth interpreting, but not as fearful motivation that we are right in the eyes of God, but faithful realization that we ought to be right by his side. That's the difference. That's the call of a Christian damaging scenario, taking an unbeliever to the book of 1 John to learn about what Jesus did for them. And just as damaging to take a believer back to John and have them questioning whether or not they lost that which they believed. Now, fellowship is the issue. Not fearful motivation that we are right in the eyes of God, but (coughs) faithful realization that we ought to be right by his side. And at first glance, when I was... Preparing for tonight, I felt like I needed to articulate what I, what I meant by uh, right by his side, but I don't, I don't feel I need to. Uh, we've probably felt what it means to be close to God, and we've probably also all wrestled with why we feel far from him. What does that mean for me spiritually? The hows, whens, and wheres we find ourselves in communion with him, just as we felt like uh, what it's like to be far from him. We've experienced. Changes in proximity to God the Father. And perhaps you're here tonight and you have yet to enter into a relationship with God. Uh, Jesus is clear, as are the accounts of his life in John chapter 1 through 12, what he is capable of, what you are in need of, and that which is ultimate rescue from sin and death. That's placing one's faith in Jesus Christ. Belief and belief alone. To accept Jesus Christ, you don't have to walk an aisle, raise a hand. You don't even have to say a prayer. You don't have to do anything for it has been done. God loves you so much that he sent his son to die for you that by placing your faith in Jesus as your personal savior, you have gone from death to life. And that life, that awe-inspiring, hope-indwelling, abundant life is the very thing we all shall continue to crave and experience. That's what 1 John is about. Where does our craving rest? Where is our experience with God? In the book of Eli, the main character was addressed by another uh, supporting character in the movie with a question. And the question was, you say you've been walking around for 30 years, right? Haven't you ever considered that you are lost? To which he replied, not once. She replied, then how do you know you're walking in the right direction? And he said, I walk by faith, not by sight. To which the person replied, that doesn't make any sense. And to that, Eli replied, it doesn't have to make sense. It's faith. And faith is a flower of light in a field of darkness. And for every single one of us, whether it's our our first step into relationship with Christ, or... It's our thousandth stumble over the very thing for which he died. The answer is the same. We need him. We need Jesus. And like the author of 1 John, these things we say here tonight so that in him our joy may be complete. Let me pray for us. Dear Heavenly Father, God, as we leave here this evening, I pray that we would have a, a newfound uh, appreciation and just overall awe of your scripture, God, and how grand it is, how, how the narrative comes together, how we can study uh, the, the way authors write and, and the audience they're truly after, God, so that we don't misuse and abuse your word. We don't seek to, to create our own moral code or do anything to, to build up ourselves, but rather humble ourselves as we are encouraged at the same time. And so God, as we leave, I pray that we would understand the difference between being baptized by the Holy Spirit on the moment of belief and having a a daily cleansing of our sins and struggles with Jesus, that we may partake with him, not being justified as his children, but glorifying him with our experience that we can know him more and more. That's my prayer for this ministry. That's my prayer for this church. So I pray that we would move forward in Jesus' name. Amen.